0: The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared.
1: After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream the library online. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location in Warminster, Bucks County. In 1777, the British Army occupied Philadelphia. For the next several weeks, they tangled with Washington's Continental Army all throughout the region. One of those places was here at Crooked Billet. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the Battle of Crooked Billet is historian Dennis Cook and historian Andrew Zellers Frederick. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thank Thank you for having us. Uh, Dennis, start us off, tell us about your background.
1: Well, my background, I'm an attorney, uh, and I've also been a lifelong resident of uh, Warminster Township, Pennsylvania. Um, I I, uh, do fraud investigations for a living, and in my spare time, I love doing research of history. Uh, Back when I was a kid in high school, I got interested in the Battle of Crooked Billet, and I started collecting everything I could about the battle. And seriously around 1996, 1997, um, I started to do um, historical document research uh, and with the goal of reconstructing uh, John Lacy's entire campaign.
2: Andrew? Well, um, I've been in the historical business for over three decades. I actually began my career with the National Park Service. I was fortunate enough to be a ranger slash historian parks like where Independence Hall was located, Yorktown Battlefield, and the Edgar Allan Poe House. Um, I've run other historic sites as executive director. Historic Rittenhouse Town, which is a national historic landmark the site of the first paper mill in America. That's down in Philadelphia's Fairmount Park. I've run the Masonic Library Museum of Pennsylvania. Uh, I was also a colonial Williamsburg for a number of years. Uh, working with their Jamestown project. I was the director of fundraising. I'm a lifelong historian like Dennis. I began when I was probably about eight years old and my parents took us out to Washington's Crossing or to Valley Forge or places like that. My sister hated it but I liked it and it stuck so when I went through um, to get my degrees uh, I got them in history. I remember my my parents saying, well, what are you going to do with this? I said, well, I don't want to teach. Uh, I'm going to go into the museum field. So that's what I've been doing. Uh, Currently, right now, I'm president of the Lehigh Valley uh, American Revolution Roundtable up in eastern Pennsylvania, where I live now. But I lived in Warminster for 23 years. And this um, burial ground behind us, when I moved here, it was overgrown decrepit all the stones have been damaged carted away and so that became a project for me to gradually get it preserved and restored and it's in much better shape today than than it was uh you know almost 30 years ago
0: uh let's talk about the american revolution leading up to this battle sort of big picture what's been going on the war
2: well the british as you mentioned have occupied philadelphia Uh, Their goal was what normal European armies did. You take your opponent's capital and its government, and the war is over. I think that's one thing the British didn't grasp totally was that, you know, the Continental Congress was a very loose organization governed by the Articles of Confederation. Each state was like its own country. So when the British uh, approached Philadelphia after uh, we lost the Battle of Brandywine, Um, the Congress just moved to Lancaster and then to York. So the British sat with Philadelphia and did not alter the course of the war.
1: And so once the British got into Philadelphia uh, Washington had a decision to make and basically they didn't have enough men to um, fight them out. So they decided to conduct a virtual siege and so they stationed uh, themselves west of Philadelphia at Valley Forge. At least the Continental Army went there. And then he assigned the Pennsylvania militia north of the city to guard all the roads um, out, coming in and out of the city um, in the north. And then on the, on the east side was the New Jersey militia. And then later on in the south, they put uh, General Smallwood and his Continental Brigades down there.
0: Washington's always had to make uh, some quick decisions in the war. Can you compare the two armies for us, Washington's Continental Army and Howe's British Army? Because they were not uh, very similar at all, were they?
1: No, I mean, the British Army was entirely professional, uh, manned with professional soldiers. I believe the average training was uh, was almost eight to nine years. Washington's Army, on the other hand, uh, they have been in existence, at least the Continental Army, since 1775. So it's really uh, uh, citizen soldiers that are fighting at this time. So he has a job of training a professional army while also um, um, uh, conducting a war.
2: And this goes on at Valley Forge. Everyone probably has heard the name von Streuben, uh the drill master. He molded the army into being more professional and being able to take the British on almost one-to-one, on most some occasions. Uh, that was proven at Monmouth, which the battle was most history looks at it as a draw, but still uh, the Continental Army had evolved quite a bit. Uh, up here, where we are today, as Dennis was saying, this is militia, sort of like the, I guess the National Guard of its day, called up for two months uh, from different counties in Pennsylvania. Not a lot of training, not well armed at all, and they, but they're taking on the professional British soldiers.
0: You mentioned not well-armed. Uh, can we talk about Washington's supplies or maybe lack thereof throughout the war?
1: Um, it's it, it, uh, Particularly around the time the Valley Forge period, there was enti- an entire breakdown by February of 78 of the procurement system. And so he had, uh, there's a famous letter he wrote, this army shall starve, dissolve, or disperse. Because uh, not only couldn't they get uh, food to the, to the camp, They also couldn't get clothing and other supplies to really uh, train the Army. Uh, Lacey had um, the additional problem of trying to protect his armaments while he was waiting for his uh, reinforcements to come. Um, He had showed up at his camp, there were 3,000 stands of arms laying all around the camp and he only had 60 to 100 men at, at Graham Park at the time and so we had to gather them all up and they had to put them in a place of safety. So we had established a, a, um, an armory, uh, a forward armory in Doylestown, which was about 10 to 15 miles up north. And then the actual army from armory for the militia was up in Allentown. So it was quite a distance, but you couldn't go um, hauling around all of Bucks and Montgomery County with all these arm ornaments with nobody there to have them. So you had to wait for the reinforcements to show up. And they were coming from Cumberland County and York County.
0: We mentioned Lacey. We'll talk about him in a bit. Um, But we said something very interesting. Washington basically had to form an army. So where does he get, for example, officers? How does he separate a citizen volunteer from a commander without really a lot of formal training?
2: Well, in the beginning, they wanted to really model the army on European standards. Now, fighting in america is very different but mm-hmm. uh benjamin franklin and other uh, diplomats silas dean are mm-hmm. in france and a lot of these unemployed officers because there's no war going on in europe uh, come to them pre- uh, present their credentials some of them were very exaggerated and they were promised high uh commands here in america uh i got to the point where Washington became very annoyed at that because he did have qualified men that had served for years in militia capacities. And maybe they weren't up to British standards, but they understood what needed to be done. So you would have a clash between these Europeans coming over and uh, the Native American people that you know, are born here. Now, fortunately, from that stock that came over, we got a lot of great officers, the Marquis de Lafayette. I mentioned von Steuben. Uh, Louis Duportay, Uh they, they were able to weed out the bad ones. But that question,
1: it, it really is a good point to make a distinction between the Continental Army and Washington appointing his officers. And on this side is the militia, which is not about Washington, it's more about the Pennsylvania state government and President Wharton. Lacey gets his appointment from the Pennsylvania Supreme Executive Council, and he came up through the ranks he was in the continental army at one time he was in the first year of the war but he only served a one-year term and that and resigned from the army at that point he then became very active in the militia and got elected uh, a lieutenant colonel uh, by his men Uh, and then in january of 78 uh, the pennsylvania government needed another brigadier general because major general john armstrong who you're familiar with from the Uh, Catani expedition had to go home uh, on a leave of absence as well as General James Potter because he had a sick wife at home. So the appointment as an officer, a brigadier general, comes from the Pennsylvania state government. So, in effect, Washington is not selecting Lacey. It's the Pennsylvania government that's doing it.
2: And we should mention how young Lacey is. Yes. He's only about, what, 23? 23, 25,
1: if you uh, depend on on whose birth date you believe. But we didn't know how old uh, Alexander Hamilton was by his birthday, so it's okay for a man like John Lacey. We don't know his birthday either. Uh, On his uh, gravestone and in his memoirs, he says it's February 4th,
0: 1755, so he's about 23 years old. Uh, When William Howe captures Philadelphia. Um, A lot of people may be surprised to find out that he wasn't entirely hated in the city. Uh, It was somewhat of a comfortable situation for him. Can you talk about the British occupation of Philadelphia from the citizen viewpoint?
2: Well, Philadelphia was the major city in North America, British North America, about 25,000 inhabitants. A lot of merchants, people that belonged to the Society of Friends or Quakers, a lot of people that were loyal to the crown. And what's more, the Continental Congress had uh, issued paper money. They they were called not worth a continental. Uh, The paper became almost worthless and so when the British came in they brought coin gold, silver, uh, re-established paying for things and acquiring them and people were quite pleased to see the British Army in the city. In fact uh, they thought this is it. It's it's going to collapse. You know, we need to be on good terms with the British. Howe was certainly very s- sympathetic. He and his brother, Admiral Howe, uh, were both Whigs and wanted to see peace with America. They uh, their history with America went way back to their brother, who was killed uh, in the French and Indian War. And so, the Howes were well thought of and uh, they made attempts at peace overtures to try and end the war and the killing
1: you have to remember the occupation lasted nine months and at this point the population is is divided uh, as to what their loyalties are so you have a faction that is uh, pro-king george you have a faction that's that's pro-independence and then you have a middle faction which is neutral so by the time how occupies philadelphia most of the independence of have left the city and a lot of a lot of it is occupied by the loyalist and the neutral. Usually they call it the Quakers, the society of friends um, who uh, were pacifists and didn't uh, wanna engage in the war. So as how uh, enters the city, you'll read in the uh, citizen's diary of the time, like Elizabeth Drinker, Sarah, Loga, Sarah Logan Fisher, um, uh, Robert Morton. Um, over time the welcome gets worn out they're initially kind of happy um, that the British are there Uh, over time though when they start to realize that uh, you know you have uh, 20,000 men showing up overnight uh, along with women and children and there's not there's there's not enough food around there's not a giant or a sheets or anything to go to they have to go around the countryside and forage for their food and supplies and it becomes very very Hard, especially uh, fuel they need wood and they start taking down the fences Uh, they start the Hessians start going into some of the crops that the citizens have grown and start taking them and say well there's enough for you we need stuff we're hungry so I would say over time they kind of wear out their welcome
0: was one of Howell's goals I guess what we would call today public relations initially building up goodwill in the city getting people back to the side because Dennis what you're describing he sort of fails at that as, the, as time goes on.
1: I think, I think he made a, a valiant effort. Of course, he uh, was, uh, to me, I think a gentleman soldier, but he loved a good time. I mean, he issued a series of orders to say, no plundering, no thievery, but it's very, very hard to keep control of everybody. And so I think uh, he, he, uh, he's considered a general who didn't really uh, fight as viciously as supposedly a Burgoyne or a Clinton would uh, go at it because he always felt that we need to bring the population back into the fold.
0: One of the things that uh, historians will see in the writings leading up to the battle is that farmers from the countryside are going into Philadelphia to sell their wares to the British. Uh, Washington thought this was a real problem. Can we talk about that?
2: Well, sure, do, Well, you know, Washington looked at this as that's depriving his men of supplies the food and, and whatever forage is going to the garrison. And we all know, the Dennis mentioned the supply situation out of Valley Forge. It was desperate by February of 1778. So these farmers are going in. They are anticipating being paid in, again, we mentioned British coin, hard coin. And that's where, you know, Lacey comes in. His orders are to stop this by any means, to prevent them getting in. And, you know, he uh, is known to have ordered farmers whipped or their supplies taken from them and, you know, confiscated. And so I guess it becomes a sort of a, a game to get past him. He doesn't have the manpower to cover every road and every uh, mile between the Schuylkill River and the Delaware. so. I guess a a system started to to get in also at this time too the the british are sending out large-scale forage expeditions and uh they you know are bringing in cattle they're bringing in uh cloth bringing in foodstuffs and also they're proactive as well yeah and they most
1: people neglect to read the plans that general armstrong and washington made for the valley forge winter which lacy inherited and there was a promise of 1,000 men. At the time, Washington actually wanted um, the force that was in the field at the time, which was about 2,500 men under Armstrong and Potter. Uh, The Pennsylvania government kind of didn't, couldn't really afford that. So uh, along the way, the number was reduced to 1,000. Because the men only served every two months, you had to wait for reinforcements all the time, and most of them didn't show up. And so there was times where Lacey's force dwindled to down to 60 to 53 men. And it was very, very difficult to try to guard almost what Armstrong called was nine capital roads. Uh, Lacey reduced it down to five. And they, they were basically trying to keep the supplies out of the city, which even Washington acknowledged, even with the Continental Army on the west side, it was impossible to be able to affect that. So it was do what you can. And the standing orders for all the generals were, if you couldn't take the supplies away with you, burn them and and destroy them. Because it's better that the British don't get them, even though their supply situation was desperate.
0: This is the, if I'm a farmer in this case, this is a a situation that sounds like uh, loyalties may be fluid. One side is trying to burn your crops, one side's trying to steal your crops. Uh, talk about the loyalties of people, and, and really was loyalty even an issue at that point if you're a farmer trying to sell your wares.
1: Yeah, Bucks County at the time, I, I believe, they was notoriously loyalist. Yeah, uh, right. And it's, it's the, uh, historians usually demonstrated by the, a number of militia that came out. Bucks County was called out to go to Lacey's camp, and uh, maybe in, uh, well, not maybe, but in April, only 21 men showed up. Uh, And there were 60,000 men on the rolls of the Pennsylvania militia throughout the state. And so when you consider by by April, shortly before the Battle of Crook Billet, he's only got 300 men reporting for duty. And so the area he's patrolling, he even says in his own memoirs, you would mistake it for the land of my enemies. Um, And so it doesn't really... um, bring anyone over to anyone's side when an American forage party shows up and at the point of the bayonet um, is demanding food off your table because they're, they are not being supplied themselves. There's no way to feed them. Um, Colonel Joseph Hart, who was a leader of the militia, actually wrote to Lacey very early on and at the beginning of his command and said, he witnessed himself uh, some of Colonel po- um, General Potter's men coming in uh, and stealing food off his table and asked and demanded that uh, they be pr- protected or else they'll, they'll seek protection elsewhere.
0: We've mentioned uh, the British in Philadelphia occupying the city. Uh, for some background, the British occupied New York City, even after the war, essentially. Uh, was there ever a sense, maybe talking about Washington's strategy, uh, of how he was going to get the British out of that city? Because theoretically... Um, Could they have held Philadelphia like they held New York indefinitely?
2: Well, what changed their minds about Philadelphia was um, the announcement of the French alliance and with it French manpower, ships, supplies and all and the British realized they couldn't hold the two capital cities. Um, Delaware could be easily blockaded and they'd be stuck there. So when this event takes place it's like the last hurrah for the British in the area. And they're gonna be gone in, what, about six weeks, you know, out of, out of Pennsylvania and back to New York where they're going to reassess what they're going to do, make the decision to continue to hold New York. New York was something Washington always wanted because he lost big time in New York and he wanted to avenge that, you know, repair his reputation. But the decisions made, well, we think there's more loyalists, people to support us, because the British were conducting a war much like Vietnam, where the American army held the coast, but the interior was all by the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese. Well, it was kind of the same thing going on here. But in the South, they were said, no, no, the British army's there. They'll flock by the thousands, the loyalists. And begin their own regiments and support, which did work for a while.
1: Yeah, and Washington early in the winter did contemplate an attack on Philadelphia, and he was counseled uh, by uh, his generals not to do it because it was too strong a position. Howe had set up a chain of redoubts north of the city that extended from the Delaware to the Schuylkill, and then also they they had um, fortifications along uh, uh, the western side of the, the city as well. Um, and, a, and a bridge that rolled up, and the—I uh, uh, think the main strategy was if I can't fight them out, I'll starve them out.
2: And also, the British army, their commander was quite content. I mean, there was a social scene, there was theater, there were concerts—at least, you know, for the officers and things. And when Franklin, who's in France, trying to negotiate the. Alliance and everything is told that, you know, Hal had taken Philadelphia. Uh, he uh, is re- uh, retorted that no, Philadelphia has taken Howe because, you know, Crooked Billet is one of the examples that they came out of the garrison, but most of the time they stayed behind those walls and didn't venture forth. Because the British army, again, being a traditional European army, didn't campaign during the winter.
0: We mentioned Crooked Billet, the site we're at now. Uh, What was the Crooked Billet?
1: Well, it was was actually a tavern. Back then, you you either steered yourself by the taverns on the roads or the towns. And Crooked Billet was a tavern. It was knocked down in 1955. It's no longer standing. Um, But it was a, uh, for lack of better words, it was the center of Lacey's patrol area. And so it was an ideal position for him to set up a
0: camp so that he could move equal distances north, south, east, and west. Uh, We mentioned Lacy's movements, why Washington sent him. Let's talk about the the British side. Who would have been the commander in this particular case on the British side?
2: Well, who brought the plan for attacking Lacy is a excellent soldier who rose really through the ranks, starting as an ensign uh, and ending up being um, major, and we're talking about John Graves Simcoe, uh, excellent Cavalry officer. Um, If anybody watched the show Turn, he is not a psychopath as they portray him. (laughs) Um, In fact, uh, very conscientious, I think, and uh, militarily prepared. And he, through his spy network, because his unit, the Queen's Rangers, which is a Loyalist unit, is patrolling all around this area. So he was familiar with it, and he had set up a network of spies. And one of his informants came to him and said, look, if you want to get Lacey, he's kind of now at Crooked Billet encamped, and you know, use this information as you will. And so Lacey approached his superiors and said, we think we have an opportunity here. Because though Lacey was accomplishing things like holding up farmers and all. It really was just a pinprick, an annoyance. But uh, this was you know, how's going out? Let's go out with a bang. And so Simcoe presents his plan. The plan is accepted. Overall command will be uh, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Abercrombie, who's a veteran of the French and Indian War. And so this unit's put together. And the British learned I think their lesson from like Lexington and Concord, where it was a slow-moving column. It got picked off. They started out with music playing and everything else and didn't keep to their schedule. Well, this has a tight schedule, and it's very mobile unit. Uh, light infantry, um, mounted troops, the cavalry, dragoons, with a plan on how they're going to surround Lacey at Crooked Billet.
0: You mentioned something that we haven't talked about in four seasons of this show, which I think is interesting, and that's intelligence gathering and spying. Uh, could you guys talk about that? Because that sounds like it's pretty important in this in this case.
1: Yeah, Lacey actually uh, uh, would at times, uh, and and Washington as well would actually pay people to um, go into the city to get information. Uh, so there's there's often a network of uh, uh, going on, and Washington also has. Patrols of dragoons, who, and Major John Clark, who was ahead of his spy network at then, was also patrolling in the same area Lacey was. So uh, there is a, a need for information when troop movements occur. And in this case, Major John Simcoe had gotten through one of the farmers who had come from the district, uh, the Northern District, had come down and said, um, gave him information about this changeover of men up at the billet. There, he Lacey had dwindled down to 50 to 53 men and he was waiting reinforcements close to about 300 and they were looking as, as an easy score to kind of bag um, about three to five hundred militiamen without little harm to themselves. So it became very very important as to when to strike.
0: Was it dangerous uh, to be a spy as we say?
2: Of course. Remember uh, yes. Nathan Hale. Yeah, uh, captured, and on the other hand, John Andre, with, connected with Benedict Arnold. I mean, it was a hanging offense. So yes, uh, uh, it was dangerous.
1: Yeah, in March of uh, around March the fifteenth, uh, Washington had ordered one hundred and fifty Lacey's men to report to Bartholomew, uh, Bartholomew's tavern up in Montgomery County to uh, witness the hanging of a, of a man named Warrell. Um, so it was a dangerous time.
0: Um, Could we talk about uh, the the uh, movement of troops out of Philadelphia to Lacey's position?
2: Well, you know, uh, Simcoe puts together this plan, which is approved by his superiors. They have about, give or take, 850 men, which is a sizable number of troops to bring out of the city. Uh, they have the, the Queen's Rangers, Simcoe's, his command uh they have uh, elements of the 17th dragoons they have um, abercrombie's regiment uh making up sort of the ground forces that were a little bit slower but they pushed them and then several loyalist dragoon units uh, from philadelphia and chester county so again mobility was was key and they left very early in the morning uh through that chain of redoubts and had a separation point, which I don't know if we've ever agreed where. Yeah, exactly. they have a
1: disagreement as to whether they traveled together or separ- and separated at one point, or completely came up different routes. Um, if you read Simcoe's journal, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rob- Robert Abercrombie came up separately from the Rising Sun up to the York Road, um, and, which basically was the main route between Philadelphia and New York City, and. At Crooked Billet was in, in the middle of that, um, along the way, let's put it that way. And then um, uh, Simcoe took a more eastern route up up one of the other major thoroughfares. Up uh, It was called the um, Oxford Road and the 2nd Street Pike at the time. And it was really coming in from the east, and Robert uh, Abercrombie would come in from the west.
2: And, of course, the overall goal is to bag Lacey's unit, to completely yeah. surround it in a pincer movement. Hmm. And it's surprising that this number of troops can get out of the city almost to their target and not be discovered or have Lacey warned. It wasn't until the very last stages that some kind of warning goes out. I mean they had to go through population areas, people's farms and all, and they were spied, but you mentioned before about uh, where people's loyalties were. Well, some of them just didn't want to get involved. You know, better to stay out of it. Lacey did send out patrols, and one patrol did did see the British troops, but their um, orders were to fire a volley. Never did it, and so they end up sending a runner, which I believe got there almost at the time of the, the yeah, battle Yeah, there was starts. one
1: runner that never showed up, and then Lieutenant Nielsen, who was in command of that scouting party, Um, sent a second runner who who made it back to camp. By the the time they made it back to camp, the the British Dragoons were already along York Road and hiding behind the fences and the trees. So uh, it was a little too late.
2: They are getting ready to snap the trap and um, they get off schedule. And uh, they try several ways to kind of intimidate Lacy's command, Uh, British Dragoons, go riding through Crooked Billet. Uh, They are able to, um, well, they arouse the camp, you know, Lacey does react Mm. and uh, tries to rally his men. Lacey also has a baggage train, you know, wagons and things. And he's trying to get away with that because it's valuable supplies.
1: Yeah, Lacey reports he was in a house across the street at the house of John Gilbert. And he and his aide-de-camp, William Means, were. Uh, one uh, one, um, traditional story is Mrs. Gilbert roused them from their beds and they ran across the road and hurriedly uh, hurriedly, uh, organized all the men into a column. And he quickly assessed the situation and realized he was getting surrounded on three sides, but he noticed that the fields north were still open and the roads were still open that way. And one, one point we want to make is that Simcoe, had, had hoped that they would run toward Washington, the protection of Washington at Valley Forge. But Washington, uh, uh, Lacey never really depended on Washington. He was a Bucks County man. And so he fled, he fled north. And so he made it, uh, organized his men and they, he, he reports some warm fires between his flanking parties and the soldiers on the road and the, the uh, cavalry soldiers coming in from the east. And uh, they go through a wood and they, Basically, exchange some warm, warm fires with the dragoons who were blocking his way, and they make way as the larger column comes by, and they f- they flee north into the fields.
2: And something Dennis mentioned was that uh, Lacey was a Bucks County man, born and raised here. I guess it was something the British either forgot or didn't think it was important that he knew this country like the back of his hand, and you know, knew routes to get out and get away from the British, and did not go the route. That they anticipated going towards Washington, but going you know, almost in the opposite direction. But nevertheless, the baggage train, because it's slower, it gets captured, and most of its men either killed, wounded, or taken prisoner. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So he report Lacy reports 26 killed, and eight eight wounded, and nine were supposedly bur- uh, burned in the buckwheat straw. Uh, and he reports even some of his soldiers being hacked and stabbed uh, with cutlasses, and uh, this gets around to the countryside and in the in the Pennsylvania newspapers, and there's a a bit of an outrage about it.
2: It's a it's a good PR war because it becomes you know a massacre, yeah. You know that they are cut down and things like that. Well, if you study the revolution, and you look at things, you'll see that when the British had a victory, like also at Paoli, where the Americans were caught off guard, almost the same thing. They, they were unprepared. The British go in with their muskets unloaded and just the bayonet. Well, that's that's a massacre. Uh, and war being what it was, it, you got to remember there's a lot of smoke from firing, a lot of confusion. Uh, it's not like you can put up your hands and, OK, take me prisoner. Uh, Better to be sure, and by being sure, making your opponent is, is dead. Uh, but it's funny that when, again, when the British make an overwhelming victory like this, using their bayonet, using their training, it's a massacre. That has to be why we lost. But when the Americans turn around and do the same thing, uh, there's a classic engagement down in the Carolinas, under um, a British or a loyalist officer named Pyle. And his men are riding one way, and they see this unit coming down, and they assume they're British by their uniform. But they were Light Horse Harry Lee, his men. And he notices it, and orders his men to wait till the columns are right next to one another. And then a signal is given, and they hacked the British to bits. I think 86 men
0: killed. We, We mentioned PR a lot in this case. uh, The British are in Philadelphia, that has been stagnant for a while. Uh, In a lot of ways the revolution is a a war of ideas as much as anything. Uh, That term massacre is so important. You mentioned Paoli but even Mm -hmm. early in the war, the Boston Massacre, one of the great weapons the patriot side has. Because before that, and this is part of my research, you know massacres almost exclusively uh, things that Indians do to white settlements and there's such an emotional response to that, Mm -hmm. massacre, you know that term. And we see it used so much in the revolution. Um, now, we talked about the people fighting here. Um, a lot of them were uh, Americans fighting Americans. It this a,
2: is this is of... America's first civil war, mm-hmm. uh, well ahead of what goes on in the 1860s. You had families split down the middle. You had brother against brother, relatives. It also served on some occasions as a way to get even with people. Uh, let's say your neighbors had... Uh, been unkind to you or a deal gone bad with land or something and they were uh patriots Well, you joined the british so in the name of the crown you got even with them and the same thing with the american troops
0: why do you think we uh, as a society not obviously historians but as a society why do you think we stray away from or ignore that partisan nature of it? why do we like to make it us versus them
2: well i think that this is the American Revolution, the birth of, a, of our country, uh, we don't want to bring up so much that there were Americans that were totally against it. Um, John Adams gives a figure, a very general one, and Dennis alluded to it, that maybe one-third or a little bit more were patriots, one-third remained loyal to the crown, and a lot of them left after the revolution and went to Canada or other British colonies. And you've got one third that's kind of sitting on the fence saying, well, we'll just watch and see who wins and then we'll play up to them.
1: I think that question has a whole nother show in it because, uh, you know, academics uh, right now are studying the whole, um, uh, Pennsylvania itself was in a revolution itself. Uh, There was arguments over the new constitution and Lacey represented um, a new breed. Right? He, wasn't, uh, he was a farmer and he was a mill owner. He wasn't an aristocrat. He wasn't a big landowner. And now the state of Pennsylvania sees that more and more of the middling sort and the lower sort want to be involved in decision-making in the government. And so it's, uh, I, I don't think we, we ever really want to think of, uh, we, we, we pursued our liberty uh, by using methods of oppression. In other words, uh, forcing men into the to the uh, uh, militia, and forcing farmers to give food to us. Uh, and also, we don't want to hear about an American soldier actually um, um, putting a rope around the neck of a market man, and, or whipping them, or dragging them with a horse. You know, it's always the, the British that had the bad behavior. We're never going to really know. Who was responsible for the bad behavior at at Crooked Billet. Um, when you read the letters of the time, and shortly before the encampment, there's engagements in which the regular, uh, the British regulars, and the uh, in the 16th, 17th ragoons had done bad behavior and had d- stabbed and wounded and burned um, farmsteads. But um, it's also Queen's Rangers. Earlier in the in the in March, they had. Uh, had two engagements over in New Jersey at Hancock's house and, and Quinton's bridge. And there had, had, there had actually uh, been some um, killings there and stabbings there. So it's, it's very, very difficult to tell. But normally like we, we tend to read this one-sided like all the British things, uh, all the British, all they did was bad things and the Americans didn't do any bad things. There were some, uh, you know, it was like, li- sometimes it was liberty, but you had to be a, a, a impose impressive messages oppressive measures on people in order to get them to um, comply. Uh,
0: we, we mentioned crooked billet as a last hurrah, in a way, for the British in Philadelphia. Uh, what happens to the British after this battle? How do they leave?
2: Well, we said in you know, the next month and a half, they p- pack up lock, stock, and barrel. Some of the command goes by sea. They're going back to New York, and probably the majority is going across New Jersey to New York and you mentioned before about intelligence. Washington gets this all at his camp. He's going to try out this army that has been trained by von Steuben and uh, take the British on. Uh, Fortunately when the battle occurs it's the height of summer, much hotter than it is today, and there were more casualties from sunstroke and heat and things like that than there were from actual fighting. But it just showed that the army now could stand up. Um, there was one incident, though, where Washington's second-in-command, who's a Lee, General, General Lee, who is not related to the Lees of Virginia, uh, sort of panics and, instead of attacking, begins to withdraw. And they said, it's one of the few times in the war you saw Washington lose his temper and swear up a storm and relieve Lee of his command and re-energize the attack. But uh, the British make it back to New York in relative safety and plan their next strategy, which is going to the South.
1: Um, A lot of people after Crooked Billet, Lacey basically, um, actually as of the day of the battle, actually comes back to the billet and resumes what he was doing the whole time. A lot of people don't understand that his force was never meant to engage a large force like 850 men. Uh, They were only supposed to be able to deal with small foraging parties. His job was to patrol the roads. So he went back to what he normally did. Potter came back from his leave of absence and only stayed a few days and went back home because, again, the force had dwindled down to about 30 men. Uh, Lacey, even though he had been relieved of duty, came back and helped Colonel Frederick Watts with the patrol. Um, He um, was... um, part of a scouting party that went over to harass uh,
0: the British as they left Philadelphia around June the 23rd. So we mentioned Lacey, uh, strong Pennsylvania ties, the war goes on, what does he do for the remainder of the time?
1: Well, the remainder of the time, the day of the battle, he actually comes back and resumes what he was doing all along through the whole winter time. And he was on a temporary assignment. He was awaiting General Potter to return. General Potter, returns on may the 13th washington relieves him of duty and a lot of historians have taken this to mean like oh he was relieved of duty because he he messed up at crooked billet and that, that's not the case at all there was never an expectation he was ever able to stop all the um the farm uh produce going into the into the city um it turns out that trouble is still at home uh, for potter and so he turns around after a few days and goes home and Lacey comes back to the field and he um, resumes the patrols until the British leave the city. At this time, his force dwindles down to about 30 men. He's only there as a volunteer and as a consultant to Colonel Frederick Watts and, from Cumberland County. And um, there's a there's a story where uh, a major common with 10 men in their patrol captured 25 prisoners. And so they, they don't, history doesn't really record uh, or tell about that, that they, they were an effective thorn in the side, maybe not as wide in scope as people would ha- had, would wish they were, but, uh, the militia just didn't work that way. And so what he does is he, um, he remains a brigadier general. He's, um, he actually becomes, um, uh, a uh, member of the Supreme Executive Council. Uh, he's elected in 1781. Um, he, uh, he also relocates to New Jersey um, and marries an, uh, Antis Re- Reynolds and he uh, starts an iron mill there. He actually becomes a member of the Assembly of New Jersey and ultimately they name a township after him, Lacey Township, New Jersey in Ocean County. And so that's sort of his legacy there.
0: If we wanted to come visit some of the sites associated with the battle or even follow the path that both sides took, where are some of the places we could go?
2: Well, there are a number of properties, buildings, that are almost all in private hands that were here at the time of the battle. Uh, just up the road at uh, street in Newtown uh, is Craven Hall. Not all of Craven Hall was here during the battle, but part of it was, and um, allegedly it was used for the wounded. Um, there are a number of buildings in Hapro that date to the time of the battle, so the British would have passed them and, and things. Uh, this cemetery that's you know right behind us uh, was the Craven Van Zandt Burial Ground. And though there are no, as far as we, we understand, anyone killed during the battle, uh, we know that a number of, if not all, of these people that are interred here uh, fought in the militia and eventually were buried here. Uh, it's interesting that when I moved up here in 1989 and got involved in history and everything going on in the township they told me about this burial ground and i remember going out one night with my dog and trying to find it could not locate it and went out a number of times finally i looked and there was just this great overgrowth here so we ventured in very carefully and saw the broken off grave markers Uh, apparently over a period of time the cemetery had been desecrated people hauled off the grave markers for Halloween decorations and what have you. And so I have sort of made this a mission to get this restored, get it cleaned up. We got the VA uh, to give us new uh, headstones, same kind you'll find in Arlington. Uh, trouble is, we didn't know exactly where they were. But uh, we did. we got one because we had a postcard that showed the image of the cemetery about it. 1900 and um, had a cemetery, uh, ceremony to uh, rededicate it and such. Uh, but actually all this ground that's in front of us uh, belongs to the Craven Hall Historical Society and we got the school district of, um, here um, to, to give us the land to preserve it. So that's what you're seeing today and there are other burial grounds around the area up in Hartsville that have veterans in them and, and the churches and things like that.
1: Yeah, we should mention too that in 1861 there was a monument dedicated in Hatboro uh, by the historian William Watts Hearts Davis and uh, William Buck, I should mention him. Um, that was moved to the grounds of the Crooked Bill Elementary School which is currently undergoing renovation and they also have taken the monument and they're reconditioning it now. Uh, in Warminster, along um, the road, is a, a monument that was placed in 1928 that commemorates the, the, uh, the soldiers that were buried in the buckwheat, uh, burned in the buckwheat straw. Um, and then there's also a dedication uh, uh, when William Watts Hart Davis in the Civil War was training Civil War soldiers. The grounds of CB West High, CB West high School yeah. uh, is, was called Camp Lacey. Um, so there's, that was in memory of him as well.
0: What should we say is the is the takeaway from this battle? Uh, what do you think is the its lasting place in history? I think I
1: I think anyone who reads about uh, actually Lacey's papers, Lacey's memoirs, and about the battle, uh, particularly uh, members of the armed forces, find a kindred spirit. Uh, he embodies the uh, uh, the uh, dedication to duty. Uh, of the military. Uh, He was given an assignment and it didn't matter whether he had 10 men or 600 men, he did it anyway. And I think that's to me is probably the most inspiring thing about it. And it's a shame around 1940, there was an article written that tried to um, smear his reputation as a bad general. And the reason why I even got involved in studying this was because I just thought that was such an odd observation to make because three weeks later there was an incident at a place called Barren Hill where another young general in his 20s was surrounded on three sides and history has recorded him as being brilliant and uh, his name was Marquis de Lafayette.
2: And on the other side of the take um, John Graves Simcoe kept a detailed journal of the war and he's in his 20s as well. -hmm. These are mostly young, yeah, Yeah. mostly young men, and um, Simcoe is involved in the war to the very end, and then he goes to Canada, and he becomes lieutenant governor of Upper Canada. And why he's there, he brings in British law, government, and also bans slavery. I, I turned up a little fact that apparently. Before he took the Queen's Rangers, Simcoe wanted to form an African-American unit of Loyalists, so progressive for his side of the coin.
0: Uh, Are there any annual events coming up that you might talk about that people might want to come see?
2: Well, Crooked Billet Day, which uh, is done by the Crooked Billet Elementary, they commemorate the battle. They usually have some current servicemen there, uh, dignitaries, and put a wreath on the monument that's now being uh, restored. So that probably won't happen again for a couple of years till the school's rebuild and the monument put back into place. Um, every so often, if it's a big anniversary, we've sort of reenacted Crooked Billet uh, a number of times, done the battle itself. But that's not a firm and uh, item. Okay.
1: Yeah, I'm involved in a lot of activities at Washington Crossing Park, so uh, I think they would, knock me over the head if I didn't mention that we do have Market and Muster Day to, co- to commemorate the uh, mustering in the militia every year. and We do that around September. Uh, you can check the website for the dates. Um, and then also, the, we do the annual crossing in the Delaware, Washington Crossing in the Delaware, the commemoration of that. Uh, that's on Christmas Day, but a lot of people don't know that the second Sunday in December is a full dress rehearsal. So if you can't make it on Christmas, you can make it on the second Sunday in December.
2: And it's less crowded.
0: Yes. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. Remember to pick up a copy of our new book, written by yours truly, Battlefield Pennsylvania, available now. For everyone here at Battlefield Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.